Welcome to episode 34 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast for Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan. And today is a special episode for a couple of reasons. The first is that Clayton is actually out of the office, so it's really just Ben Eats the Bible. But also because we reach really one of the most pivotal moments in the biblical story that I think we often don't emphasize or don't really know a whole lot about, at least in our stream of Christianity. And that is that today the exile finally comes, the destruction of Jerusalem uh, finally happens. So let's dive in. We have some readings from the very end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and then quite a few chapters from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so like I said, Rather than kind of the normal format, since it's just me, uh, I'll, I'll just kind of go through our, our main readings and talk a little bit about just what's going on and, and some things to be looking out for. And so just to start with our the very brief readings from Second Kings and Second Chronicles, you know, we've been building for the last, almost the last month at this point as we've been in Jeremiah and started to be in Ezekiel, but just creeping towards this this kind of catastrophic event horizon that is known as the exile, uh, which is when not, it, it turns out on a historical level, not that many people like five to 6,000 Judeans, but most of the leading figures who survived the war and the siege, military commanders, royalty, scribes, all those different sorts of folks were all taken from Jerusalem and deported several hundred miles away uh, to Babylon, the capital city of the Babylonian empire. And we've also said a few times, and I think it's just important for those of you who like the historical context, that when we say the exile, I mean, we're talking about really a 10 to 15, maybe even 20 year span where every few years the uh, Babylonian Empire would deport another set of, of elite from Jerusalem to Babylon. Sometimes it seems that this was sort of just the standard procedure in terms of wanting to absorb Judea into the empire. The part of the way you did that is you brought, especially the young people, and I think this is where like Daniel and Ezekiel were probably deported. You bring the young people to the imperial capital, train them up in the ways of Babylon, and then they either work for the imperial bureaucracy like Daniel does, or eventually perhaps they would be sent back to Babylon to, to work as kind of the client government there, uh, which is what we ultimately see happen. I mean, Babylon falls and, and the Persian Empire comes to to uh, conquer and dominate Judea, but that is kind of what the Persians do, is they send figures like Ezra and Nehemiah back, um, not to run their own country, but to, to govern Judea on behalf of the Persian Empire. So that was part of some of these deportations, but then we also see that these last few kings of Judah who did none of them reigned for very long some of them were assassinated some of them were more or less arrested and deported by the babylonians and so when they try when they get a little uppity and they either reach out to egypt or some of these other countries for help or when they decide that they're not going to pay the, the the taxes that they owe to babylon well then the babylonians show up again and deport some more people i think more as like a punishment so there's there's sort of two aspects to that you know, I don't know how many of us are really that that's really going to like change your life to know, but just that, yeah, we, we say the exile, but that's kind of a shorthand 
really of of talking about a an, an entire generation, you know, 15 years, 20 years of this sort of thing happening to Judah. And I will say, I think that part of why I think that's important to note is that it just helps us understand as we're reading, especially the prophecies, to just understand that if if it had all just happened on a single day or a week, you know, that Babylon showed up, laid siege to the city, burned everything down and took a bunch of people, uh, the rich, powerful, educated elite to Babylon, that would have been awful all on its own. But for that to for that one single terrible day to still have happened at the end of a 15 year process of conquest, of domination, of forced relocation of people. I mean, that I think just gives us a bit more of a scope of what that for that that to some extent, the exile was a slow moving disaster. But then it it started moving real quick there at the end, which is which is where we get uh, here at the end of Chronicles and the end of, of Kings. Is just this report that Nebuchadnezzar himself shows up. They lay, lay siege to the city. You know, more or less, the Babylonian government is tired of, of playing around with these rebellious kings of Judea. And so they've come to destroy their capital, take the rest of the elite into exile, and that, that Judea would just be ruled directly by the Babylonians rather than by a sort of the client or puppet captive kings, as I think the, the phrase that we've used before, these captive kings that... Uh, we're ruling at the behest of the imperial overlords. And I think it's also important, and I mean, you can read these verses, you know, and I think especially the Chronicles one, and I know we, we tend to kind of be partial to Chronicles around here, but I think that Chronicles was written a little bit later uh, after the people had started to return from this exile. And so I think that the perspective gained by that 70 years spent away and then now we're returning and we can look back on this. I mean, Kings has a has a valuable contribution to make, and they're both scriptures, so I'm not saying, you know, read one, don't read the other. But I think that Chronicles, just purely on the level of literature, I think does a better job of sort of painting the, the, the doom of that day, the disaster of that day. And I think it's just worth, it's worth dwelling on it. It's not, it's not cheery reading. It's not necessarily uncomfortable reading. You know, we've been building towards this for months, really, as we watch the monarchies collapse and the northern kingdom be conquered and, and the prophets come to try and warn them away from what's going to happen. And it just seems like that Judah has been this runaway train. You know, no one's steering. No one's running the engine. No one can hit the brakes. It's just careening toward disaster. You know, and I think that I think that 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 gets traction on several levels for us, you know, as, as Christians, modern Christians reading back on this of just one understanding that somebody was driving. I mean, Yahweh is, is sovereign over all of this. And he makes that very clear through, through the message of the prophets and just his interventions in history. So even something, even when things look totally out of control and that the whole world is on fire and everything else, like the Bible is unanimous in, in telling us and encouraging us and witnessing to the fact that God is still in control. Now, the, mm, I don't know if it was a luxury, but the, the difference for the ancient Judean people is that they knew exactly why this disaster was happening to them. Whereas for us, you know, we often do not understand why the things that happen happen as they do, like the war in Ukraine or these awful wildfires on Maui. And a huge difference between their day and age, the Bible's day and age, I mean, and ours, 
is that back then there were men and women who were authorized by the Lord to tell the people why these things were happening, whereas I think we don't have that authority anymore. So it's always, I think it's just always worth saying that that we should be very hesitant to assign reasons for why disasters happen, both at a, in the big level, again, some of these things I just mentioned that just happened that are terrible, but then also at the personal level, like why did I personally get cancer? Or why did I personally, you know, have my house burned down or something like that? You know, I think that we just, we don't know enough to say, oh, well, it's the judgment of God because of such and such and such a thing. It, and we know that even for the Judeans, it was, I don't want to say it was more complicated than that, but that you know, you can, you can, you could answer that question. Why did the exile happen multiple ways? And all of them are true, but you know, they're all kind of mutually overlapping, you know, different reasons. But again, at bedrock is because this is what Yahweh willed and, and what he made very clear to them what happened at the very beginning. And we've referenced over and over again, you know, at the very end of Deuteronomy, there's these chapters that detail in pretty great detail, you know, what is going to happen as the people settle in the land and become corrupt and lose their way and worship idols, you know, and, and I think that the way that, that we, you know, Calvary uh, uh, holds the Bible in high theological esteem, right? We believe it's the word of God and we believe, yes, there were editors and, and people who came in later and made adjustments, but that for the most part, I mean, these, you know, that the Deuteronomy wasn't written hundreds of years after Moses's day, that the core of it belongs to Moses, you know? And so you think about that at the way at the beginning of the foundation of the kingdom, well, before it even was a kingdom, you know, but when it was just this confederation of tribes, Moses told them in the covenant, look, this is the path, you know, this is, well, and it's hard to know exactly how to say it. What, <laughs> Were those, were those chapters of Deuteronomy put there to say, this is absolutely what's going to happen and there's no way for you to change it? I don't think so. I think that it was more in, 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 in terms of, here is the way that things will go if you do not very much, generation after generation, have renewal in your hearts and cling to Yahweh and, and his covenant promises and the obligations put on the people for the covenant. And of course they didn't, and and this is what happened. And so it shouldn't have surprised anybody. And you know, as you read, especially Jeremiah, in these chapters this week and last week, that there is a certain and, and Clayton I think spoke to this a little bit at the end of last week's episode that there is a a great degree of just resignation, <laughs> you know, and and even in the way that Jeremiah tells the people like what you need to do right now is let the Babylonians conquer the people, like don't fight surrender be taken into captivity like don't try and resist what's happening and i think for us as americans you know when i read i was reading that and it just it and i knew what we were reading i mean this isn't the first time i've read jeremiah but i think that every time it just rubs me the wrong way <laughs> not just as an american person but i think that you know, when you think about, okay, so so history ha moves the way that it does. And again, we know that God is sovereign over all of these things. We don't understand exactly how that works out in the nitty gritty detail. But we also know that God does not look with favor upon conquest and oppression. He does not ultimately reward nations, I think, for that sort of behavior. But at the same time, and I think with that, that he that he remembers the poor, he remembers the poor ones, he remembers those that are downtrodden. And I think that we could say that he 
historically speaking, favors them, right? The empires fall and the people that they oppressed survive. And I mean, the Jewish people are exhibit A, you know, the first line of evidence for that. You think about all these other empires that have come and gone and are dust now, whereas the Jewish people are still here. And in fact, as of 1948, you know, they the, the state of Israel exists again. Uh, as a sovereign nation, you know, and, and so, yeah, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to think about all that, and then to read what Jeremiah says to the king and to the other figures of, like, no, like, what, what our calling now is, is just to basically sit down and let this happen, you know, to, to, yeah, surrender and be taken into exile, it's, it's very hard, it's very difficult, but I think that their resignation in some ways makes sense, because they knew what was going to happen. None of this was a surprise because Moses had, had kind of set, he had laid out the script for them hundreds of years ahead of time. And they had watched all this unfold, you know, and so it was like, all right, here we are. We did it. And this is what's happening. You know, and I think with the exile in general and, and specifically the destruction of Jerusalem, you know, it's worth dwelling on and just thinking about, you know, we've talked uh, previously on the podcast that obviously a lot of what happens in the Bible you and I have no direct experience of, you know, some of us in the Calvary family are farmers, but we don't farm. None of us farm like the ancient Judean people did. You know, none of us or very few of us at least, you know, have ever been in situations of extreme violence or have been enslaved or, you know, just all these different things uh, that, that we see happen throughout the Bible. Now, obviously there's a lot of, you know, we're human, they were human. And so much of our lives are the same. But just in terms of these specific historical experiences, you know, that we just haven't had. And so to think about something like the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, the scale and the depth of that happening to them is something that we as Americans have never experienced in our national life. And by God's grace, we never will. But I mean, it's, it's hard to even find even recent, you know, historical examples of, of this happening. You know, and I think that because... You know, I think that my my knee jerk thing would be to maybe to to look at the Holocaust and what happened during World War Two. And I mean, which was horrifically evil, unspeakably so. I mean, it's hard to even come up with the words for it. But I think that that actually proves the difference that that that's actually doing bad, doing wrong by the Babylonians because they were not as evil as the Nazis were. The Babylonians weren't trying. Their goal was not to exterminate the Jewish people. It was just to conquer their territory, extract what value they could out of it, you know, and, and, and that's that's what drove their behavior, not any kind of particular racial or anti-Semitic hatred. You know, and I I honestly wonder if the nearest to hand kind of historical for us example would be what happened to the Native Americans just as 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 European settlers arrived on North America. And it was just this. Yeah, I mean, truly, we it it it, it fits all the marks of, of the destruction of Jerusalem that we conquered their land. We displaced them physically and then we destroyed everything more or less, you know, their sacred uh, areas and, and, and yeah, just remove the meaning of it. You know, it's sobering to think about, but I think that it, that might help us understand just the depth of the depth of what happened to the ancient Jewish people, the ancient Judeans, but then to also be able to carry that forward into our own lives of like, this is a story that isn't just something that happened in the ancient world, but that, that even our own country has perpetrated against other people and that we ourselves can, you know, cause ultimately it's, it's, the sinfulness of individual human hearts, right, projected across the face of a whole nation that, that causes these things to happen. 
And so the exile certainly is, I think, emblematic of just the depth of human sinfulness, kind of from both directions. So you have it from on the Israelite side, the Judean side of just the the wayward, uh, you know, generational sinfulness and stubbornness, the runaway train to go back to that metaphor that eventually led them to this point. But then also from the Babylonian side of just how easy it is for great nations, great powers to kind of stomp around, do what they want, you know, and 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 uh, wind up hurting and oppressing people, even if they don't mean to, you know. And, and again, I don't think Babylon's goal was not to destroy the, the Judean nation, you know, in terms of wiping out all the, the Judean people. You know, that, that was not their goal, but and yet they came very close, you know, to it as they destroyed Jerusalem and scattered these people. And I think especially theologically speaking for... Judea for the temple to be destroyed for the king to be taken into captivity like everything that marked them as a people besides like circumcision and they carried that in their own bodies you know was removed from them like who are we if we don't have Jerusalem if we don't have a temple together to worship the Lord or well I don't know how many of them thought but just you know, since so, so so much idolatry is happening, but just even as as a purely national symbol, you know, for the the city of David to be burned down and destroyed, for the excuse me for the treasures of the Ark of the Covenant to be taken away, or excuse me, the treasures of the temple, perhaps including the Ark of the Covenant to be hauled away, you know, to be melted down, repurposed for pagan idolatry and pagan worship, for the king himself, for his eyes to be plucked out, you know, for him to be basically hauled like a, a freshly caught fish, you know, with hooks in his mouth all the way to Babylon to then live as sort of a pet king, a pet monarch, you know, at, at the Babylonian emperor's table. I mean, it's it was a true disaster. You know, it was death. It was death on a national scale. And I say all of that just because, again, for us, for our kind of stream of Christianity, I feel like we we do pretty good at learning most of the stories through maybe David and up until Solomon building the temple. And then it kind of peters out in terms of everything that comes after that until we get to Jesus, of course. But I think that the exile looms very large. It kind of, it casts a shadow forward, certainly, you know, that the, the end of the old Testament, that's all it has to do with. And Jesus's life and ministry is occurring under the shadow of the exile and kind of the continuation of that as, as the Romans have come and replaced the other older empires. But the exile also casts a shadow backwards. You know, I mean, we start to see foreshadowings of it in the book of Genesis and dealing with the city of Babylon and dealing with the chosen family being driven out of the promised land uh, Adam and Eve themselves were exiled from the garden. They traveled east just like their descendants one day would when they were exiled from Jerusalem. So, I mean, it's it's just this true national catastrophe, you know, that I think just looms large over the biblical literature. And as we can can know more about it, absorb it, appreciate it to some, well, not appreciate it. I don't know what I meant by that, but I guess appreciate the impact that it has, then we're going to be able to understand the rest of the Bible more. Uh, more more better <laughs> better more clearly more deeply and again to know that yes this particular exile happened once a long time ago but that that so much of this is emblematic of the individual human experience i mean we all have to face co- the consequences of our actions and being kind of victim to powers that are greater than our own up to and including death itself but then also the human experience as whole nations and societies just the churn of history 
Um, so, you know, just think about all of that <laughs> as you as you read the passages, uh, as the, these passages. And I think in terms of our prophets, you know, we get a little bit into Lamentations at the end of the week, but I'm going to leave that for next time, uh, just because we all have more, more readings and Lamentations next week. You know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we are, we're kind of tracking at different points in their prophetic careers, if you will. You know, and so Jeremiah, we've read a lot of, of doom and gloom and judgment from him. And so now he's kind of, ta- he's, he's beginning to make the turn into the promises of restoration you know, the promises of hope, whereas Ezekiel is still in the doom and gloom stage, you know, so you'll, you'll notice that as you read the, uh, the two passages this week, uh, or the passages from both books that Jeremiah, Jeremiah, lots of Jeremiah's passages are beginning to, to sound more hopeful and, and kind of make the turn away from the threats and the judgment to the promise, whereas Ezekiel's still in the, the threats and judgment gear. And that's fine, but I think it, it's, uh, you know, I think in a big picture sense, I think it's good for us to hold both of those things in tension. You know, and we live under a different covenant, you know, and we know that the punishment for our sins has been visited on Jesus. And so it's not building up kind of this this awful uh, interest to some extent, you know, like in a bank account that it was doing for the, the, the people under the, the Mosaic covenant. I mean, that's exhausted. That's done. Um, and we don't have to worry about that in the same way. But at the same time, you know, we know that, yes, we, we live under the gospel. We live under what Jesus has accomplished for us. But we are still accountable for our actions. There are certainly still consequences for our actions. It's not like God just delivers us. Sometimes he does. and We praise him for that. But often he does not. And I think he is just, it's just for him to do that, to not rescue us from the consequences of our actions. You know, ultimately he will because we'll be raised again from the dead. Um, but but even then, you know, that we we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we know that that examination, you know, we won't. Well, we know that we will not pass on the merits of our own actions, even if we've done a lot of good. And I think that God will acknowledge that. But that the only way that anyone survives, you know, that judgment is because they they belong to Jesus and have pledged their allegiance to him. You know, and, and so I think just to, because you kind of see the church, different churches can, can you know, it, more or less it's hard to keep the teeter-totter balanced, right? The, natu- the natural way of things is to either sit on one end, tip, tip one end or the other, you know, and I think that that's just true of many things and it's true of this as well, that you have churches that, that major in the promises of hope and resurrection and in kind of singing with the woodland creatures. And then you have churches that major in the in the doom and the gloom and the judgment. Generally speaking, the big churches are the happy ones, and and, and the little tiny churches, you know, where like twelve people show up. I mean, I don't want to caricature caricature them, but it seems like not. My point in saying that is people are far more interested in the in the happy aspects, which are true, than they are in the judgment aspects, which are also true. And I think that we ignore those things or we minimize. Uh, those that aspect of the biblical witness truly to our own peril and to the peril of our children. Um, God is not a great cosmic care bearer or Santa Claus. You know, that is not, those are just not accurate pictures of him. He's also not, you know, a cosmic monster, you know, who's just waiting for us to, to mess up so that he can smash us and send us to hell forever either, right? There's a balance there. There's a tension there. Um, that God is good, but he is dangerous. And so I think it's important just to to keep that reality in mind as we read Jeremiah and Ezekiel this week. You know, and I think a really good example of that 
is uh, one of our chapters is Jeremiah 32. Let me flip to it here. And I think that Jeremiah 32, and, and, and there's been a couple of these within Jeremiah, but this is just a good example of, you know, that wrath, wrath and judgment and redemption and faithfulness are all part of the same package when it comes to the creator. You know, for us, it can be hard because so much, so, so often our motives are mixed and our hearts are sinful, but his motives are not, his motives are pure, you know, his motives are good, his heart is good. And so, you know, God is wrathful because he is faithful to his covenant. He is wrathful because he is faithful to us and he cares about us, right? Sin, it's not just that he doesn't like it, but that it is actually corruptive to us, but and then also to the rest of the creation. And you see this this kind of back and forth that, you know, okay, the people are worshiping idols, they're giving their hearts and their souls to things that are not God's or not God, I should say. And then what that means practically is that the poor are mistreated, that, you know, immorality is rampant, and that the natural world is being exploited. I mean, that's what you see over and over throughout the prophets. Ezekiel will talk a lot about that in our chapters this week. Um, let me see here if I can find the... Uh... Well, you know, and so in chapter 32, Jeremiah buys a field. The Lord commands him to buy a field, you know, and it is this kind of paradoxical... Uh, grand prophetic gesture of like, okay, so this exile is about to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. It's going to be awful. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And also, I'm going to go out and buy a field, you know, and and, and hide the deed so that when you, you all come back in 70 years, you will be able to find this physical document, this proof that, that the Lord is faithful to his promise. Um, you know, and I think that part of what can be difficult for us to understand just because, you know, who wants pain and discomfort is that, you know, I think that, that evil must be punished, including the evil that we ourselves commit, but that we would rather God just didn't have to do that. <laughs> but I think that the, the, what we have to confront ourselves with is, yeah, that, you know, that would be nice if he didn't have to do that. But would, what would be even nicer is if you didn't originally do the thing that requires punishment, right? That we also don't have to sin, we don't have to make those decisions, you know, and Paul talks about that at length in Romans, especially Romans, that we are free from the tyranny of sin as Christians. And so that means that that doesn't mean that we won't sin. I mean, I think any of us who are realistic know that, but that we don't have to. We are free from from making those decisions and, and, and kind of falling back into those old habits and patterns. But that part of what God sometimes has to do in a person's life, in a church's life, in a country's life is bring them through a terrible time of testing, not to necessarily directly punish them for what they've done, but to actually purify them so that they won't make those those choices again. I think that we can all hopefully point to situations in our lives that were hard or that were difficult or intense you know, periods of grief or trial that it's not that we're happy that they happened because that would kind of be crazy <laughs> if you, you know, but we can see how the Lord has used those things to refine us, to purify us, to, to really to turn us into better people. And again, yes, it would be great if we lived in a universe where he didn't have to do that. I think if we lived in that universe, then he wouldn't do that. I mean, God, and we see this in one of our readings on Ezekiel, 
the Lord does not delight in the death of anyone. And I think that we could, we could say, kind of paraphrase that to say the Lord does not delight in the punishment of anyone. You know, so it's not like, I mean, he Ezekiel compares or the Lord tells Ezekiel that his when his wife dies, that that's basically what the Lord is experiencing in the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's not like Yahweh is relishing that he finally gets to pour out his wrath and vengeance on the people. I mean, this is this is an experience of deep and terrible grief and bereavement for the creator, which is hard for us, I think, to conceive of and, and to, you know, to think about theologically, but just like, he's not standing apart from it clinically, you know, oh, that's too bad that this is their condition. He's also not a torture master who's like, ah, ha, ha, you know, I'll tighten the screws and, and that'll really show him, you know, I think that, yeah. And, you know, and, and again, looking forward to Jesus, I think that this helps us understand to some extent, or it just sheds, it just set, it sheds some light on what happened to him you know that jesus did nothing to deserve the sort of death that he died right he was he was killed by the state as a terrorist i mean that's really that's the 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 what we're talking about here and you know and the religious leaders wanted him dead certainly for their own selfish you know motivations but also because they legitimately thought of him as a lawbreaker and a heretic they wouldn't have used the word heretic but that sort of a thing you know someone who was threatening to, you know, uh, uh, call faithful people away from faithfulness to the covenant, right? And I mean, you can, again, you can understand as a Jewish leader in that, in Jesus's day, reflecting back on the exile and saying, we can't have that happen again, you know? And so for Jesus to be a lawbreaker, so to speak, or to be labeled that, to be labeled somebody who's going to, to lead the people astray, like he has to die or else our nation is going to be destroyed by the Romans. And I think that, you know, the Gospel of John makes the point that the high priest prophesies, he doesn't know it, but he prophesies when he says it's better for one man to die than the whole nation, you know. And he's right. He was right about that, you know, that Jesus was going to die for the whole nation and then also for the whole human race. And I think that that the prophets kind of help us understand that, you know, that Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus, I don't think we should say that Jesus was, well, what am I trying to say here? That in order for humanity to be humanity to be saved and for the power of sin to be destroyed, you know, that Jesus had to to take all of that upon himself because he was also God, and so ultimately his life was was indestructible. You know, but that that sin and death themselves had to be punished and destroyed. But the only way to do that was to sort of concentrate them or focus them in one particular place or one particular human body. And then that's what's happened with Jesus. And so then as the Apostle Paul reflects on the death of Jesus and what does that mean for our suffering, you know, it's not that the, the bad things that we experience are also helping to save the world. That's not what Paul means. But rather that we can rest assured that the punishment has already been, has already been dealt. Jesus took that. And so whatever we're experiencing you know, we sh- we ought not think about it as the wrath of God upon us in terms of punishment. Again, we might just be suffering the consequences from our bad actions, and that is what it is. And, and I don't want to say we just have to live with that, but we have to own up to that. You know, but sometimes disaster comes, like on Job or even onto Jesus himself, out of nowhere. You did nothing to deserve it. What in the world is happening? You know, and that that because of the death of Jesus. You know, we know that God, that God can redeem, I think, the worst days of our lives, you know, for good. 
that's a cold comfort to some extent, you know, because again, that doesn't mean that we, that we won't go through those terrible times, but that everybody does and that God himself does, right? That it's not the case, you know, the ancient Greeks, well, there was a lot of ways they conceived of the gods, but the philosophers, especially, you know, that they, they, the way they pictured their gods was as sort of these aloof, faraway beings who almost played with human lives like a game, you know, like it was a chess game or whatever else. And that when one of us died, oh, you lost the piece, but a uh, big deal, you know, because there's, it's all just a game. It ultimately doesn't matter. Or even in terms of like a military general who sends his people to fight, but then he remains, you know, behind basically to give commands. And that is really from beginning to end, that's just not the the witness of scripture at all, that God is not at all aloof or distant from what is happening to his people, but that also that in Jesus, God himself is at the front. <laughs> you know, he is, he's not just sending people into a fight that he himself is not involved in. Like he, he was born into the same world, experienced many of the same things we did, and then he also suffered death. And he not only suffered death, but in dying, he destroyed the power of death, right? He destroyed the power of sin. And so we are all saved out of this. Why, you know, why aren't we all just immediately saved? Why do bad things still have to happen to us? I mean, these are these are questions that I think have an answer, but not any that we're going to be able to arrive at anytime soon. Um, and so anyway, I just think that as I was reading uh, these chapters and just kind of mulling it over, you know, for us. Um, yeah, that, that those are just some of the thoughts that I had. And I wanted to just make a few other comments here. And so Ezekiel 18 is one of our, our readings this week. And, and the last couple of weeks we've commented on that there seems to be this shift with the exile that previously, you know, the people of Israel were sort of considered as a whole. I mean, obviously there were individuals and in, in you know, like in the instance of, well, I guess this is the, this is the, well, anyway, they, they were kind of considered as a whole, right? The whole nation is being judged through the exile, even though did every single Judean worship idols and do all these other things? No. I mean, Jeremiah didn't, Ezekiel didn't, Daniel didn't. Uh, so there are these faithful people in the midst and yet the whole nation is being punished. And we know because Chronicles and Kings tell us over and over again, again, that there was this accruing sort of interest or iniquity, really. I mean, that's what iniquity means. It's like a burden, this accruing iniquity rolling over from previous generations that had to be dealt with. And we know that when there was a righteous king who repented that that punishment was forestalled, but it didn't go away. You know, it just, it rolled on to the next generation. And so how do we, you know, so that's all happening. But then Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both telling us, well, but, but just the, just the one who sins will be punished for his sins. You know, and they both quote what must've been a common proverb at the time that the fathers eat sour grapes, but it's the children whose teeth are set on edge. You know, to use a different metaphor, it's the fathers who smash their thumbs with hammers, but it's the children who feel the pain. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. It's like, no, like each will be judged for his own sin. And in Ezekiel 18, he really articulates this clearly of like, look, if there's a if there's a righteous person, he will be rewarded. If he has a wicked son, then his son will be punished and he won't share in the reward of his father and vice versa. If there's an evil person, he'll be punished for his sin. But then if his son is righteous, he won't be punished for his father's sin. And then he go, Ezekiel goes on to say that if somebody starts out righteous and then goes astray, 
they will still have to be punished for that and vice versa. If someone starts out wicked and then goes righteous, you know, that will be credited to them, to them and that God is not unjust in any of this. And this is at the end of 18 is when he, Ezekiel says the famous verse that Paul quotes later in Timothy that, that the Lord does not delight or does not desire the death of anybody. You know, so, okay, so what does all that mean? And, and it's complicated, and I, I think that there's a lot here to, that I would want to learn more about and, and look into. But I think that one of the big takeaways that I took from it and that I, that I want to uh, just comment on here is that really what it boils down to is none of us know the day of disaster, like the day of judgment, the day of our death. And so if we're a righteous, quote-unquote, a righteous person, you know, we may tell ourselves, and I think this is usually how it goes, you know, oh, okay, well, I can do this bad thing because God will forgive me for it later, or I can make up for it later, or whatever else. And we may not, you know, I don't know if anyone ever has that actual thought process, but that's sort of what we think, is that, oh, well, there'll be time to deal with it later. And I think that Ezekiel, part of the point Ezekiel's making is, maybe, but actually, we have no idea if there's going to be a later. You know, we don't know, you know, I think if we read that into just kind of the state of mind of a lot of the people in Jerusalem, that they're all thinking, eh, you know, yeah, there's these, you know, inequality and these other social issues and people are worshiping idols, but the next king will deal with it. Like we can, we can do it and they'll just have to deal with it later, right? We're eating the sour grapes, but it's our children whose teeth will be set on edge. And I think Ezekiel's saying, no, like you, the, the day of judgment is today and there is no more time and there is no later. You know, I think we can even think about that with like positive changes that we want to make in our lives. Like, oh, I'll start a diet next week, you know, or, oh, you know, I'll whatever. I'll start, you know, walking more next week. It's like, no, I mean, that's it, it's not bad to make plans like that, but like there's no assurance that there's going to be a next week. Why wait, you know, when you can start today? Oh, you know, reading my Bible, I really should do that. You know, maybe next month when they put out a new Bible reading plan, that's when I'll, I'll jump into it. And it's like, no, no, start today. We do not know how much time we have uh, for good or for evil, right? Meaning hopefully that deters us from, from willfully making bad decisions. And then also hopefully that encourages us to do the good things we can do today. The very last thing that I wanted to say, and this is more of just a bonus, kind of a fun thought, but I referenced earlier, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the destruction of the temple, the part of what that means is that the treasures and, and Kings Chronicles tell us this, that the treasures were, were hauled away. And I think just something that's interesting to think about is, well, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? And you, uh, the, the, the studious Bible readers among you, you may have noticed that Kind of slowly through the book of Kings and Chronicles, the Bible just sort of stops talking about the Ark of the Covenant, and it's never acknowledged what happens to it explicitly. This is a mystery that's been kind of a puzzle for generations of, of Jewish and Christian people for thousands of years, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. I think that I'll give you two answers, and I mean, you know, y'all, nobody knows, so it's just kind of what I think. What I think probably actually happened is that either Nebuchadnezzar took it and melted it down and destroyed it, or it was stolen earlier. So we know that like the, one of the pharaohs, when he came and invaded and kidnapped Josiah's son, uh, he also took a bunch of stuff from the temple. And so I think perhaps the, the, the ark was taken then. You know, I think that that, in some ways, that makes sense, I think, on just the theological level of, of considering 
you know, that the presence of Yahweh had departed from the temple. He made that very clear to Ezekiel. Ezekiel had literally watched it happen. And so, like, there was nothing, quote-unquote, special about the temple anymore. And I think that would extend to the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, the people had broken the covenant. So there was no covenant, you know, to some extent for it to even be the Ark of anymore. Uh, so I think that that, to some extent, that, that would make sense, I think, for Nebuchadnezzar or someone else to march in, take it all, take it away, and it's gone forever. What I would like to think happened <laughs> is, so in one of the book of the Maccabees, which is one of the apocryphal uh, books that is not in our Old Testament, but it is in Catholic Old Testaments and, and Orthodox Bibles, uh, it relates this this story that I think is an ancient story that the prophet Jeremiah, because he knew that the exile was coming, that the that Babylon was coming, and that they were going to conquer the city, that God told the prophet Jeremiah, and that Jeremiah took the ark, took the menorah, you know, took some of the other important articles from the temple and hid them somewhere in Jerusalem, you know, in a cave or or something. I mean, he hid them under the ground, and that that's where they are to this day. And, uh, I mean, that would be awesome, <laughs> you know, if at some point we found some chamber and lo and behold, there was the Ark of the Covenant. You know, again, I think as Christians, I don't know if we should expect that that object will still hold the same kind of holy power as it once did. Because, again, I mean, Jesus is the true and, and permanent temple, the true and permanent mercy seat. And so the that object itself, I don't know if it, if, if it would still have that conferred holiness but just just as the it would i think yeah that would just be really awesome and i know that you know some some christian traditions kind of look at all of that to say that you know that there's going to be a third temple built uh, before the coming of christ in jerusalem on the temple mount so then part of that will be the discovery of these of these objects and who knows i mean that that may be how it all works out um, but it is just interesting and something else about this that i learned a few months ago uh, that somebody uh, had mentioned to me and then i looked into it and it was just interesting is that you know you may have heard us talk about or just in your own uh studies have heard about the dead sea scrolls which are this huge library of material discovered in the south of israel which included a lot of the books of the bible uh and also many many other things and one of the things included in this treasure trove was the set of bronze tablets that listed the locations of a bunch of buried treasure <laughs> but like in a code so some of it we know where what they're referring to and of course if you go look now it's all gone so either the people who originally buried it took it or we know that the roman empire actually had a treasure hunting team that would come in and and root out where the locals had buried all the gold so that they could take it you know and rome could extract the value from the place so a lot of it may have been taken by the romans over time as well but it, it, it's just interesting to think about you know and th there's no way to know at this point but just a connection there of like what if you know at some point someone decodes one of these golden or bronze tablets found and, and it winds up leading us to the ark of the covenant so anyway, that's just a kind of a fun little bonus thing at the end. I do hope you enjoy these readings. Uh, they can be a little, I mean, they're not necessarily cheery. It's a lot of doom and gloom, but I think that there's a lot of value for us as followers of Jesus in, in reading and considering these things. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.